This is the War Room Roundtable podcast, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant businessmen and women on the planet, hear their stories, and get the most important business lessons they've learned on the road to success, and get exclusive advice on how to implement their successes into your life and business. The War Room Roundtable is brought to you by your hosts, Jason Miller, CEO of Strategic Advisor Board, and Philip Llanos, CEO of Own the Rhythm, and former podcast host for Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine. Welcome to the War Room, Patrick. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we like to kick things off uh, traditionally around here by asking, uh, do you yourself come from a family of entrepreneurs, business owners, or in your case, even educators? Uh, actually, educators. Um, there's quite a few people in my family that teach. Um, I taught for 40 years at the medical school, University of Wisconsin. Um, I have some other teachers in my family. My grandfather was a teacher of um, mechanical arts and, and things like that in high school in Superior, uh, Wisconsin. I think that's where the family gene of teaching comes from. Okay. And it's without doubt and goes without saying that that's sort of what influenced you to become an educator is the fact that it ran in your family? Uh, absolutely. You know, I um, always admired my grandfather a great deal. He was a really uh, wonderful guy. Um, that's my dad's dad. And uh, we always thought really highly. Um, we were told that he had a, they threw a parade for him when he retired. And I always thought, man, that's pretty cool. That uh, Somebody, the whole community admired him so much, they throw a parade for him. So I always um, looked into the profession of teaching to see uh, how it could influence young people and how important it was in young people's lives. They threw a parade for your grandfather for the education that he was giving people? Yeah, he was uh, such a pillar of the community up in Superior, Wisconsin, that when he retired, they threw a parade for him. I wonder. That's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what what kind of person do you have to be to have people celebrate you in that way? That's Did that stay with you? It really stayed with me. I thought about it a lot. And um, one book that had a big influence on me was called uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And it was about a a teacher that had a lot of influence on young people, you know, it was uh, about a guy that students just wanted to hang around and <clears throat> learn from. And I wanted to be that kind of educator. And uh, at the end of my career, I became the Dean of Students at the medical school for 11 years. And, um, you know, I worked with 900 students a year in the medical school and the PA physician assistant school and uh, PT school, uh, physical therapy. And, um, that that had a profound influence on me. And he did not throw a parade for me. <laughs> what you did all that work? <laughs> uh, black, you know. <laughs> Different then, times. That's what that is. That's yeah. what that is. <laughs> where's the parade, man? Everyone's like, "Where's the Instagram live for this?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then, where does the uh, the luckiest boy? in the world a book come into the picture here for you yeah that's it starts right there you know um i would never have dreamed that i could have been in a position like that when i was a kid because i grew up in this family of seven kids and um my dad was a 
you know, the oldest of um, seven kids in his family. And his mother died when um, he was 12 years old and they were right in the middle of the depression. And he had to get a job um, when he was 14 and drop out of school. And uh, he became a writer, actually, and um, became a really good writer and then had to serve in World War Two. Uh, so, you know, that generation went through some really rough stuff. And um, but uh, he met my mother, who was also a writer. And um, in the journalism profession at the time, it was um, it was hard drinking. You know, if you read about any kind of journalists at that time, it was do your writing, get the paper to deadline and then go have a couple of martinis. You know, it was like Mad Men. And um, they would have a couple of martinis and then have a couple more on the way home and then keep drinking at night, you know, and, um, and then they would start arguing and fighting and they, they fought every night that I was alive and, uh, fought and fought. I mean, it was, a uh, not physical most of the time, sometimes it was, but it was verbal and, um, it was loud and obnoxious and, um, brutal actually. And, um, unfortunately, uh, it was turned on each other. Fortunately for us, it wasn't turned on us most of the time. And, but we couldn't get anything done in our house. And, you know, we couldn't, it was really hard to get homework done. Most of the nights I just left and went to a friend's house. Um, it was really a hard upbringing. Um, they burned up a lot of money in alcohol. So we didn't have much. Um, at age 12, we all had to get jobs. In our case, it was paper routes and I scooped ice cream and mowed lawns and all that. We had to pay for all, everything, clothes, books, school fees everything we didn't i didn't get a dime from my parents after age 12 so things were pretty rough i was a twin um my twin is the mayor of our hometown and he um really bright guy really smart guy and so we were in class together pretty often in a catholic school and the uh, teachers started calling me the dumb twin so they would hold up our assignments and say hey look what the dumb twin did you know that did not help me on the playground i can tell you that so I'd get in a lot of fights and get in trouble. And so I thought, well, if I'm the dumb twin, I guess I might as well uh, do something different. So I was the class clown. You know, I'd sit in the back and goof off. And I was pretty good at telling jokes and, and uh, causing trouble. So things were not going well for me. And then one morning in the morning paper, there was an ad to be uh, the first bat boy for the Milwaukee Brewers baseball team. And I thought, well... Why not give it a shot? So I wrote a 25-word essay, and I won the contest. And it, it changed my life. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. And uh, there is, yeah. a lot of things I could personally relate to um, in terms of uh, leaving two friends' houses to just get away from whatever was happening at home and things of that nature, working really early on. Um, there's a lot of things that I can relate to, and I can see how that uh, plays a role in your development, but uh, then you get this stroke of luck to get an opportunity to write. And it sounds like that really turned the tide. Uh, before we go any further, I want to turn it over to Jason and have him chime in on what you've said so far. It's a little eerie. Cause I got like goosebumps during that story. Cause I could insert mine right into that. I grew up in that household like that. My dad was a Vietnam vet and you know, there was a lot of abuse and stuff going on in the house growing up, and not a lot of people know that about me. So I'm sharing that new 
here today in this podcast, but, uh, but yeah, I dealt with that same thing. And my saving grace was the army. <laughs> that was my way out of it. And, uh, that's the way I got out of it was through that way, but it happened all the way through my entire life into, uh, it's not that way. Now I actually just came back from there yesterday. So, uh, and spent a week there with my family and it was great. And it's been a lot of healing happened. I haven't been back there for 10 years and, uh, a lot of healing has happened there. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was one of those deals where it's like, Oh, what heat round am I going to walk into (laughs) (laughs) when I get back there? What drama is there going to be or something like that? Right. So, but, uh, I, I can really relate and I know Philip can like super relate to that. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm really sorry you had to go through it. Yeah. But Hey, life is full of challenges and that's what makes us who we are today. Right. It's what shapes us. To who 80% are of people grew up in a family with dysfunction. 80%. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. yeah man. Um, it, that's that whole saying that if you were placed in someone else's shoes, you, you wouldn't walk a mile in them, uh, just given the way the circumstances are dealt. But now I'm beginning to think, does that mean your twin brother got a parade and you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> you know, man. There yeah, was, you did. He got <laughs> several parades. Oh, all the time man. dude there's no <laughs> way dude i never thought of that <laughs> you're killing me did you did you at least get a gold watch when you retired <laughs> well, I, I got <laughs> from the university <laughs> i got the gold watch man there yeah you go. man that's uh that's insane but also at the same time coming back to what was going on, this was around the time that you discovered writing for yourself. Am I correct? That's right. I, um, the last person in my family that I thought would write, you know, since both parents were writers, um, my older brother, Joe is an author that's written over 25 books on film, uh, film directors. Um, he's written some movies, um, well-known guy. My sister's an author writes about women's history and journalism. And she was a professor uh, my my twins written a lot. We have a lot of authors in the family. My youngest brother's a dean of public health, and he writes uh, books on um, uh, rural health. And anyway, so a lot of writers. So uh, I thought, now nah, I'm not going to write. You know, I'm going to do something different. When I got into um, working for the baseball team, um, I thought, wow, this is a really unbelievable opportunity. Um, I'm not going to blow this one. So. I worked as hard as I could. I sprinted. I never walked one minute in that job. I Everywhere I went, I ran. That was my calling card. So I was dripping wet every night. We worked 12-hour days there at the time. Um, they don't let you do that anymore. Um, so I'd get there at about 2 in the afternoon. I'd get out of school early. I rearranged my schedule. And we'd get out about 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd have to ride my bike home eventually a motorcycle. And um, and then it turns out that the Green Bay Packers played five games in Milwaukee in those years because Vince Lombardi was afraid the NFL put a franchise in, in Milwaukee and because Green Bay was so small. So he played five games in Milwaukee. So 
um, the guy at the that was running the locker room said, hey, you know, you're a hard worker. Would you like to work for the Packer games this fall? I'm like, would I like to work for the Packers? You know, <laughs> 15 year old kid, you know, it's right after the Packers had won a couple of Super Bowls. I'm like, absolutely. So now I'm working for two teams. And that same summer, it was 1969, um, the uh, Milwaukee Bucks had just been a new team the prior year, and they finished in last place because they were new. And uh, they were in the in a coin flip to see who was going to get the first-round draft cho- choice, and it was going to be Lou Cinder, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So I had a transistor radio for my paper route, and I was listening to the coin flip. And when the Bucks won the coin flip, I ran to the phone. I picked up something called the Yellow Pages. Most people don't remember those. But, and I dialed a rotary phone and I called the Bucks office and I said, "Hey, how do you get a job as a ball boy for the basketball team?" And they said, "Wow, it's it's your timing's amazing. We're interviewing tomorrow." So I got on a bus. I went down to the Milwaukee Bucks office downtown Milwaukee, and I interviewed with about ninety kids, and I got picked to be on the Bucks bench. And so uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and I started on the same day with Milwaukee. Oh, man. Oh, wow, there's there's a story was, right there. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. So I was working for three professional sports teams. I'm the only kid in America that ever worked for three professional sports teams. Oh. And I worked for them for the next uh, seven years. Um, and I worked my way up. I became the youngest assistant trainer in professional sports when I was a senior in high school. See, there's something, there's something too, what you just said there, uh, that I know a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to. And that is, uh, you yourself had a goal in mind and you wasted no time on taking action towards getting closer to that goal. So much so that once you were there, you didn't slow down. Some people get comfortable. Uh, believe me, I, I probably am one of those people. And then next thing you know, you went as far as you possibly could every opportunity you gained uh, and that that sort of pattern has probably led to a lot of success uh which is probably also how it is you eventually ended up as like a professor uh, an emeritus professor of medicine at at the school of wisconsin and 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 uh and public health and medicine is, is this sort of accurate those same traits of like i would say very much so philip i'd say there's two things that probably contributed one was this idea that uh well one is being a twin so my twin wrote the book with me but there was always a competition so it's like gee i gotta work hard because uh i want to do as well as he's doing and so we're we're always one up in each other this guy became a superstar division one athlete won 12 letters in college in three sports straight a student became a lawyer and then a you know, big shot. And he's a great guy, um, really great guy. And he's a selfless human. And that's why he's mayor of the town. He's just a really wonderful guy. Um, but so we were always in this competition who was going to, I thought, man, I better do something really good because he's always doing good things. And then the second thing was, I always felt like I was inferior inside. You know, I had this thing I call imposter syndrome where I always felt like, gee, they're going to find out I'm not smart. They're going to find out I'm not good at what I do. You know, I'm a klutzy guy. I'm this or I'm that. So I always felt like I had to work harder and prove myself, work harder and prove myself. And that literally was my whole career. You know, when I got in medical school, they actually sent me a letter and it was addressed to Ms. Patricia McBride, 
And I thought, man, they made a mistake. You know, they thought I was female. That's why I got it. So um, I waited a couple of days before I even calling them to correct it. You know, I always felt like they made a mistake. They made a mistake my whole career, you know. Um, so I always felt like I had to work 10 times harder to prove myself. And I think that comes from families like ours, you know, the three of us where um, there's so much shame built around, like coming around from everybody in the neighborhood knowing and police would come to our house and the lights would be going. And I was always so embarrassed by, you know, how drunk my parents were when friends came over. And um, I always tried to work extra hard to overdo that, overcome that shame. Man, I know what you mean. I really do. Um, I'm one of 18 kids, long story, and moved every year, uh, was never really anywhere for very long, always had to make friends really fast uh, because it was always a new environment, a lot of survival uh, instinct on on overdrive growing up. Uh, So believe me when I say I can understand where that comes from and then how that affects your adult life. Uh, I know a lot of entrepreneurs deal with that too. Most entrepreneurs that we've talked to here didn't really go to school. There's a few, but most of them, you know, most of them all have really like just couldn't do it. They they had to be doing something else, had to control more of their life. Uh, and everyone who comes from that background shows a degree of this. I've got to control while at the same time, should I even be here? You know, things like that. Uh, so it, it does make a lot of sense. And I, th- I just think it's fascinating. And I'm very grateful that you shared and opened up about that because uh, sometimes entrepreneurs can be pretty successful and never have themselves feel like anyone can relate to them, uh, which is why they'll let, we've spoken to people like that. They'll end up getting everything they thought they wanted only to find it means nothing because they haven't taken care of what's going on inside. You know, uh, and while they may all may not have a brother who became town mayor and got his own parade, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, they they have something like that in, in their own life to some degree, whether it's other people they know or some people are concerned about the college reunions and the high school reunions. And, you know, it's this race and this war against ourselves yeah. trying to be better while at the same time worried about whether or not we can be if we're even worthy of it you name it so i really appreciate that you opened up about that and here you are you know you you're successful in your own right and you've done awesome things your perspective itself speaks for itself and uh you don't get that kind of thinking by not having paid some dues so i think uh there's a lot to be said and a lot to be learned from that um if you did have a explicit advice you could give maybe to your to your younger self once you really got a hold of like who you were as an adult to some degree like okay i'm like you know i'm like 18 19 now it's time for me to like really look at life a little differently what what would you have said to yourself knowing what you know now talk to somebody open up because a lot of other people are going through the same experience what jason said was so profound you know he got to go home and you know, that his family was in a different place was what he was really searching for. You know, my family wasn't going to be okay. You know, my parents are, were really wonderful people with a bad problem. So I didn't know how to relate to them in the, with what they were going through. I was just angry all the time at them, you know, and I needed to work on myself 
so I could relate to them differently. They were actually good people, you know. Um, but me being angry all the time didn't help. And um, me suffering all the time didn't help. So I'd be angry on the outside and suffering on the inside, you know. Um, I could have made my life, I think, a lot happier. Eventually, I got help for myself, you know, because when I started to have my own family, I didn't want to repeat the pattern. And I was working really, I became a workaholic to be successful because I thought that was the means to have a really good family. And what I eventually learned was I needed to slow down and focus on myself and make myself a better human in order to have a really good family. Because I eventually did, you know, I have a great family life and wonderful grown up kids and a wonderful wife. And, you know, and I did work really hard. I worked too hard. And I tell people to slow down and take care of themselves and and um, get some help and and build better balance in their lives because that's really, you know, connect to their family and uh, try to see their family in a different lens. That's that's what key to happiness. Man, be forgiving. Yeah, <laughs> of them and yourself. You know. Yeah. No, I mean that's. There's an old saying: you point a finger at someone else, there's four fingers pointing at you. Right. Yeah. True, man. It's cleaned up my own bedroom, and then (laughs) yeah, I think you learned that in the military, Jason. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah, no doubt. There's, uh, it's easy to blame somebody else, but you know, and and off many times it is somebody else's fault, but it doesn't matter. It's what you turn that situation into that really matters for yourself, right? Because if you can, right? yeah. Because if you can, you we we can only control what we can control. So, yeah. And the the sooner we learn how to control, it's like I tell my son all the time. I tell him, "Look, it's your day. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be what you're gonna make it. So you can be angry and pissed off all day long because you didn't, you know, get a a, a, a squeezy yogurt in your lunch today." Or yeah, right. <laughs> stu- probably a stupid example, but oh, but, exactly. uh, but but the whole point is, is we control our day. We can either yep. be angry and pissed off, and you know we wake up in the morning and something happens and throws your whole day off, or you just go, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Maybe I'll Next. be in a good mood today. Yeah, <laughs> right. Next, that's mm-hmm. my thing. Next. <laughs> and, and philip i swear with what you were talking about earlier with having 18 siblings you should start a new company and start teaching people how to speed network <laughs> you'd probably be good at that change incorporated there you go just to change hey <laughs> we solve the world's next problem oh man meet friends and influence people there you go because i it's funny because i read all that i was angry for a lot of my life it was similar to you and even after learning this it i still took a few years like four or five more years to really get over it but i i growing up the way that i did you know i was angry and at 14 i got the off chance to read how to Win Friends and Influence People, Think and Grow Rich, and another book by the name of The Four Agreements. And in particular with The Four Agreements, uh, it wasn't even any of The Four Agreements that struck me. 
what it was, was uh, there was a phrase in passing that it said in the book about if you're the voice inside your head, who is the person listening? And when I read that, for whatever reason, was the right place, the right time for me. I was like, man, you know, I keep in my head, I keep, you know, why is it always got to be me? My immediate reaction to many obstacles in general, something I still work on is my gut instinct is to be like, why is it always going to happen to me? Right. And I, and I catch this voice that just immediately jumps to that. And it's something I've just had to deal with my whole life um, and realize, you know, if I'm the voice inside my head, then who's the person listening? And I realize I'm not, but I, I do happen to have a loud neighbor. That's basically what I have to live with. But as long as I can sit there and observe it and not accept it as who I am, well, then I stand a chance for success. And so that's just something I've had to live with my entire life, sort of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. There's probably some psychological reason that can be diagnosed for whatever that is, but that's just what I've had to live with. And I know that there are many people just like yourself who've had to overcome that and and succeed in spite of it all so uh yeah. you know i had all these things that every kid dreamed of and you know i i think of this song that linda ronstad used to sing you know poor poor pitiful me <laughs> it used to play in my head all the time oh poor poor me you know i mean we had food we had a roof over our head you know i had i was making money i was hanging around you know sports superstars whatever i had a car paid for myself you know i'd feel sorry for myself and i think the turning point for me was um, when I learned to write down, you know, it's what it's called an attitude of gratitude, where every morning I'd start and I'd write down the things I was thankful for. And, you know, a lot of them were like super basic, you know, like I'm healthy, I'm alive, I have a roof over my head, I have breakfast this morning. And all of a sudden I'd realize, okay, man, you got things 90% of the world doesn't have, you know, just shut up and go to work, you know, you got a job, okay, get out the door. Oh, you got a door. Okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like quit feeling sorry for yourself, you know. And once I realized that I had so many things that I could write on a gratitude list that it was ridiculous, I stopped feeling sorry for myself. You know, and I was just grateful every day. And I'm not kidding. That was a total turnaround point for me. Because I, before that, I'd be like, Jason was describing your son. It's like, what you know the world's ripping me off you know da, 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 da. you know no it wasn't you know it's always it's i think it's always our attitude you know of, of looking at things that that's what i've learned yeah no i i love it man there's so much to get from this conversation and before we go too far i i want to take a second just to to thank i give a shout out to you some people who've made it possible to even have this awesome conversation. And, uh, and, and one of those companies that's a part of our community here at Strategic Advisor Board is ProShark uh, with Joel Phillips. And essentially, when it comes to business, you always know right off the bat that you're never really done with growing your business to wherever you want to get to. And even for those who are starting out, it's like, what should you be doing? What kind of tools should you use? What kind of technology to have your website up? Uh, what do you need for cybersecurity? You know, is it going to be an e-commerce and a shopping cart? You can literally save yourself all the time, money, and headaches by just getting in touch with ProShark. Uh, they're a turnkey digital solution that cover digital marketing like ads, emails, social, full stack, web development, apps, like I said, websites, even the e-commerce. And they're fully equipped to help you with pretty much everything you need, including cybersecurity, like I said. So whatever kind of a uh, organization you might be, you can legitimately find a true partner 
in ProShark. So the next time you're thinking about your tech stack or what tools you may need for this next uh, move that you're making in your business, no matter what stage you're at, just keep ProShark in mind and you can go to ProShark.com and tell them the war room here at Strategic Advisor Board sent you. Uh, with that said, let's get back to uh, an awesome moment here. We're approaching the grand finale. I want to check in with Jason before we go to the grand finale. Let's do the grand finale. All right. For a thousand points. This is finally, (laughs) Patrick, this is your parade. It's the parade. Are you going to beat, beatbox the parade, baby? Yeah, baby. Love it. I've been waiting for that parade my whole, no, no. We'll give you a parade, Patrick. Man. <laughs> I wish I had a, a button I could punch in some sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. He's good. a jolly good fellow. <laughs> and I did it my way. There it is. Sinatra. Anybody yeah. survived uh, 17 siblings needs a break, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, don't we all? Um so so the grand finale question is. Uh, Patrick, if you could have invited anybody from any point, place, and time in the world, uh, dead or alive, to have been a part of this room and this conversation today, whether just as a listener or a contributor, who would you have loved to have had here and why them? Yeah, I would have invited my parents. Um, I would have said uh, thanks. And, uh, and um, I would ask some questions. <clears throat> and I would have told him I understood and, um, you know, that I didn't always understand when I was younger. Um, I think we would have had a conversation. I would have loved to hear him open up about this. Yeah, man. Um, I think some important things happened in this conversation that, uh, just happened as a, as, as a byproduct of us willing to like joining being willing to join up, have a conversation, seeing where things go. Uh, this is the kind of thing you can't script, right? This is just curiosity and getting to know each other um, with an objective of like truly being here present. And uh, to hear that the people you would have chosen as your parents, I can understand that. And I think there would have been some amazing things happening. I mean, it's like you said, at the end of the day, you realize they're good people. You know, and they come from a different time in yeah. in society. Um, you know, like my my father is an immigrant from Mexico. My mom's an American runaway. But my father's father, my grandfather, he was uh, like a like a rancher in Mexico, like a farmer, kind of owned his own ranch and. You know, whatever I thought my dad did to me, his dad was, you know, even even more strict let's say (laughs) is that the is that the word we're using yeah yeah you know but my my dad himself was like selling chewing gum at five years old you know that's that whole immigrant lifestyle you know that that they come from true poverty you know and my mom herself being a runaway and her own poison so so that that she comes from and what happened there so i get what you're saying when you're like i I wish we would have been able to sit down and have a conversation. I feel the same way. I, I don't have that opportunity myself, but I know exactly where you're coming from. And I think that if anybody gets anything out of this conversation, as my closing thoughts, uh, if you haven't had a chance to go back to your hometown, like Jason did recently, like uh, start to consider it and, you know, maybe make an effort to connect with people you have walked away from for 
one of two reasons, either to validate why you stepped away to begin with, but (laughs) to do it on explicit terms, you know, like no stone left unturned. It's true. We see each other for who we are now and fine. Or you may find that you're surprised that everything you thought was happening may not have been the way it was that you thought it went down. And there's some differences that you're now able to, after some time, see. Um, I think it's a valuable invitation that we could offer people. Those are my closing thoughts, but it's tradition around here that Jason closes us out. So I'll turn it over to him. Well, you know what the good thing is, is I got to do that this past week. So at least one of the three of us got to do that. So um, I got to do that. And it was, uh, you know, the thing about it is it's amazing how much sometimes we misunderstand things. When if we just would have asked the question, we would have went, wow, I was off on that. Holy crap. Right. I was way off on what I was thinking. And then maybe that wound festered for freaking 20 years. Right. And then you look back on that and go, wow, what a waste. You know, my sister and I didn't talk for 12 years, all over a misunderstanding, basically. Wow. And I got home and she said she kept trying to call me on my cell phone, had no idea. I don't know how it happened, but it wouldn't ring through to my phone because it was blocked on my phone. Her number was blocked. No idea how that happened, but it did. And And then I went into the call history and here was all these phone calls. She tried to call me over the years, all these phone calls, you know, once a month, birthdays, everything. And, uh, well, that won't happen again, but. (laughs) Oh, isn't that great? But, uh, very healing and at least go find out for yourself for sure. And if it's still what it is and you understand it to be the way it is, well, at least you did your part. You can at least you can at least be at peace with yourself. And at the end of the day, that's what's important. But thank you for being here, Patrick. I know we're all busy. got a lot of things going on. Thanks for taking, you know, 40, 45 minutes to spend with us today. And we greatly appreciate it. What a great conversation with the two of you. And you you, uh, made my life better by being here this morning. And and likewise, my friend. Likewise. (laughs) A great conversation. I, it was like a parade. <laughs> I, I, hope, uh, I hope people get a chance to read my book because I think they'll get a lot out of it. There's some yeah, surprises where, in there about how I lost my mother and, and a lot of other things. So, where yeah. can people go get your book at? Uh, it's on Amazon. It's called The Luckiest Boy in the World. The Luckiest Boy in the World on Amazon. Go pick it up. Yeah. No, I'm, learn a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check it out. I, I think there's a. If, your conversation here with us is any indication of what the writing is like when we usually write in the voice that we speak in. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So Patrick, thank you so much, man. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Seriously. Cheers. Yeah. yeah the pleasure been mine guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great conversation. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the War Room Roundtable with your hosts, Jason Miller and Philip Lanos. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advisement on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates. And always remember, if you can dream it, 
and believe it, and you can go achieve it. We'll see you in the next episode.